problem with lunch is when you have to preach after it. <laughs> Turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. There's two ways to get up into the pulpit. Number one is because you have to say something. Number two is because you have something to say. Uh, we've all been in the first position where it's like, oh, they asked me to speak. I've got to come up with something. But you all know what it's like when you're well prepared and you have something the Lord has put deeply on your heart. It's rooted in his word and you have something to say. That's how we want to get up into the pulpit. Um, there was a pastor's wife who got sick and she had to go into surgery. She didn't know if she was going to make it and the doctor wasn't that optimistic. So as she was being wheeled down the hallway into the surgical suite, she said to her husband, Honey, uh, you don't know about this, but under the bed, it's hidden. You'll have to look for it, but there's a shoebox. I want you to know about it. In case anything happens to me, there's something in there for you. She went into surgery. Curiosity got the best of him. He couldn't wait any longer in the hospital waiting room, so he rushed home, looked under the bed, found the shoebox, and inside that shoebox was $10,000 in cash and three eggs. He didn't understand what that meant. She pulled through surgery just fine, and she was in the recovery room. He went in there, and after she woke up a little while, after comforting her, he said, Honey, I'd like to talk to you about that box. I was delighted to find $10,000 in there. You must have been saving for a long time to come up with that, and I understand that you wanted to pass that on to me, and I, that was wonderful, but $10,000 and three eggs? What's all that about? She said, well, early on in our marriage, I decided I didn't want to be one of those complaining wives, and I didn't want to bring up bad sermons after you preach them, so I said, every time he preaches a bad sermon, I'm not going to say a word, I'm just going to get one egg and put it in a shoebox. So he started thinking, wow, 31 years of preaching, three eggs, I'm doing pretty good. And he said, you know, you know, he was about to say something. And then she continued. She said, and then every time I got a dozen eggs, I sold them and put the money in the shoebox. <laughs> that's free of charge. That's after lunch joke. I was listening to something John said in the previous session. It was really good about what Spurgeon remarked on. He talked about the food that the householder supplies. The food that the householder supplies. What a great illustration. That we are those who are stewards and dispensers of food that the householder supplies. Here's a true letter, a real letter. It was written to a British newspaper called the British Weekly. Listen to this. Sir, I notice that ministers seem to set a great deal of importance on sermons and spend a great deal of time in preparing them. I've been attending services regularly for the past 30 years, and if I estimate correctly, I have listened to no less than 3,000 sermons but I discover I cannot remember a single one of them. I wonder if a minister's time might be more profitably spent on something else. Sincerely. 
somebody would hear that and go, wow, it does have a point. I mean, they don't remember all my sermons, and yet I spend so much time in preparing them. A lot of responses came back to that newspaper in response to that letter, but one that was published read this. My dear sir, this is another letter now from someone else. I've been married for 30 years. During that time, I have eaten 32,850 meals, mostly my wife's cooking. Suddenly, I have discovered I cannot remember the menu of a single meal. And yet, I have received nourishment from every one. I have the distinct impression that without them, I would have starved to death long ago. Good point. You may not remember the menu, but you have grown and you are healthier and you have lived longer. And the bottom line is the meal, the growth that the householder supplies. We're going to talk about sermon preparation, the nuts and bolts. We've talked about what it is, why it's important. Now we just want to talk about in the afternoon how to do it. And these are the real nuts and bolts. This is the preparation for it. When we talk about preparation, I do want to broaden it out at the very beginning and go from wide to narrow and just say that it's more than sitting down with a computer and a few books and some language helps and looking and pondering and writing because preparation is a life experience, right? It's your whole life is preparing for a message. Your whole life is what is being prepared. E.M. Bounds said, Preachers are not sermon makers, but rather men makers and saint makers. And he is only well trained for this business who has made himself a man and a saint. So we prepare our whole life and all of the experiences that go into the sermon. It's what William Quayle, a great one for preaching, get his stuff. In the 1800s, he talked about pollen for the mind. I remember the phrase, pollen for the mind. And what he meant is all of the experiences that we go through in life, all of the things we experience, they pollinate our minds in terms of illustrations, examples, lessons learned, principles that can be corroborated with Scripture. And all of that is the preparation. It begins there. Anybody can assemble a sermon. We want it to change lives. Well, I've had you turn to Ecclesiastes 12 because, interestingly enough, Solomon calls himself the preacher in this book. Ecclesiastes, that sounds very familiar, like a term you know, ecclesia, which is the church in the New Testament. And the preacher here is the Hebrew word kohelet, which means the assembler of a group of people, somebody who assembles and addresses a group of people, a kohelet, a preacher. And he is is speaking to, he has assembled Israel, he has assembled the masses, and he's giving his little journal, his life's journey. And here we read the epilogue. This This is how he prepared for what he wrote. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 9, And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, He pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright, words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads 
And the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. What I want to do now is give you four things to do, four principles to employ in putting together, in assembling an expository sermon. Let me give them to you, and then we'll unpack each one. The first is pondering. The second is organizing. The third is engaging, and the fourth is applying. I'll repeat them all as we go through it. First, we ponder. Notice what it says in the text we just read. He pondered and sought out and set an order. Now, those words speak of work. They speak of preparation. We want to come prepared. We want to come because we have something to say, not because we have to say something. And the only way you get there is by hard work, by preparation. You pray, but you do the work. Some people assume that if you just open the Bible and start talking, that magic will happen. No, usually weirdness happens. It's sort of like saying, I'm just going to turn on the faucet and let the hose run. Unless you organize that, you'll have a flood on your hands. So it comes by preparation. Why do we need to prepare? Well, we go back to what Stott said, and I do recommend the book to you, Between Two Worlds. And he talks about in that book, fine book on preaching, that the pastor is a bridge builder that we are bridging the gap between two worlds, hence the name of the book, Between Two Worlds. We're dealing with an ancient world. We're dealing with a modern world. The world of the Bible is the ancient world. We live in a modern world. And it's a very, very different. There's this big gap, and we are bridging the gaps. Our sermons are building a bridge, bridging the gap from the old text, thousands of years old, to the modern world. Now, why do we have to bridge the gap? What are the gaps that we bridge? First of all, historical. There's a few thousand years that have elapsed from the biblical record to the present age, so there's a historical gap. Second, there's a linguistic gap. The Bible wasn't originally written in English, but in Hebrew, and ancient Hebrew at that, not even modern Hebrew, and Aramaic or Chaldean, the language of the captivity, and then finally Greek. So that's a gap. There's a language gap. Third, there's a cultural gap. The, the way they did things back then and, and the social customs of the day were far different from our techno-urban modern culture. Finally, there's a philosophical gap. Worldview, modern worldview is highly pluralistic. The ancient worldview was a hodgepodge of varieties, some pluralistic, some monotheistic, some polytheistic, but we're bridging the gap that that context was written in. So in order to do that, we need to ponder. We're pondering. Um, pondering is a combination of meditation and prayer. It's where you pour over a text, read over a text, let the words bounce around in your mind. Sometimes I find it helpful to read aloud and not only read but hear what it sounds like as I read. And as you're poring over a text and meditating on the text, you are listening to what impression the Holy Spirit is putting on your heart. Somebody once said, a good preacher is somebody whose ears get as much exercise as his mouth. 
We are listening, and we must listen before we have anything at all worthwhile saying. We want to come to the pulpit and say, I have heard from God, and thus saith the Lord. So this period, pondering, this is the incubation period. It's the hardest part of the sermon, in my view. It's where you don't grab commentaries and see what they say God said or what God said to them. It's what God says to you. It's the incubation period. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, I sit a long while on my eggs before I let them hatch. (laughs) Only he can say things quite like that. I sit a long while on my eggs before I let them hatch. John in the previous session, spoke about Spurgeon referring to soaking in the text. Here's the quote. I find that I can preach best when I manage to lie a soak in my text. And I find out its meaning and its bearings. And then after I have bathed in it, I delight to lie down and let it soak into me. It's great. Now, I find what I do is I can't wait to find out what I'm going to preach next. So when I'm done Sunday, often Sunday afternoon, just a quick breeze, just a quick reading, I'll go over the next week's text. I'm that excited to find out what's coming up. And I just read through it because then now I have my bearings. Now that becomes my grid and everything from Sunday afternoon into Monday, my day off, into Tuesday with the staff, Wednesday, everything is now filtered through the grid of that text and I'm looking for things. I'm looking for things that I hear, illustrations that I might come across, uh, things that people do or say, events during the week that will help buttress, perhaps, or work its way into that message. I lie a soak in my text. I say this is the hardest part. It is, but it is also the most rewarding part. Because as you're reading and rereading and turning it over in your mind and talking to yourself, that's meditation. It's sort of like... um, it's like chewing an orange. You know, you, you put it in your mouth and then you chew it and you chew it again and there's still a little more juice and then you grab that thing and chew it again and the more you do it, the more you extract. Or, to be a little more crass, it's like a cow chewing its cud. You know what it does? It chews, swallows, brings it back up, regurgitates it, chews it again, pushes it back down, brings it back up. Choose more, and each time it is getting more nutrition, more nutrition, more nutrition. Or like a bee probing a flower, going in deeper and deeper and deeper, and each time going in, extracting more and more out. That's this phase. Well, this is where I begin. I, I have a yellow pad. That's where I start. And so when I ponder, when I meditate, I have the yellow pad out, and everything as I read the text that comes to mind, everything, I write it down. Doesn't matter if I scratch 90% of it out later, and I do, but what comes to mind, I just pour it forth because I may forget that thought. It may be pertinent, it may be not. This is my first going through, this is my first rendering, my first pass. I'm just writing down what I feel the Holy Spirit is putting on my heart. Do not go to commentaries first. Do not do that. You might have fine commentaries and they've been recommended, and you're pondering, you go, I got nothing here. I've got to find out what he's got. Don't do that. Refrain from doing that. Please give the Holy Spirit a chance to speak. We used to have a bumper sticker in the Jesus movement, give Jesus a chance. We might have one for preachers. Give the Holy Spirit a chance to speak to your own heart 
about your own needs in your congregation. Otherwise, you'll find yourself like the little boy whose dad was about to spank him, and when dad turned around to grab his belt, the boy quickly stuffed napkins in his britches so that when the belt came across his rear end, it didn't hurt as much. We can pad our theological britches with so many commentaries that the Holy Spirit can't sting us with his truth, with his word. It doesn't have the same effect when it comes through the lips and through the mind of somebody else. Nothing wrong with them. We all have libraries. We all love commentaries. We recommend the buying of fine books as we do today. But we don't want to go to them first. We want to dig into the text, meditate, mull over, and all the while... We're praying prayers like what Samuel said. Speak, Lord, your servant hears. Speak, Lord, your servant hears. Lord, I'm listening. What is it you... Wrestle with it. Wrestle with it. Go over it and over it. I mentioned that meditation is a combination of prayer and study. Get those two. Prayer and study. Don't, don't push one out for the other prayer and study. Some people read and read and read and they do not pray. Some people pray and pray and pray and they do not read. Diligent prayer, diligent study. Do them both. It's like husband and wife. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. John Wesley White, a friend of mine, he just lost his wife this past week. He used to be Billy Graham's researcher. Brilliant man, Ph.D. from Oxford. And wherever Billy would preach, John Wesley White would be in the hotel room going through newspapers, getting modern illustrations of what's going on in the town. But whenever Wesley White, John White, would be preparing for a sermon, I've seen him. He's, he was on his knees with a Bible open. He was taking notes while on his knees. I've been in his room and watched him do this. Fascinating. But he believed that this combination of prayer and study, he took it so literally and so deeply, that's how he applied to his life. R.W. Dale put it this way. I think it's brilliant. Study without prayer is atheism. Prayer without study is presumption. Both are necessary. So take out your pad or your iPad or your computer, whatever works for you, and just scribble those thoughts. They don't have to be organized because the second part is the organizational phase. Number one is pondering. Number two is organizing. After pondering, now comes the organizing. Look back at our text. It says, he pondered, that's the first, and sought out and, watch this, set in order many Proverbs. That's organization. That's arrangement. So once you have all of these notes and all of these thoughts, what's the first thing you look for? John said it last time. I said it the first time. The big idea. The dominant thought. What is the dominant thought? What is the theme that is running through this? Or if you prefer, what is the preaching point? Same thing. Proposition, preaching point, big idea, theme. State it in one sentence. Write it down at the top of your notes. Write it down in one sentence and go no further till you say this is about that. State it in one sentence. 
Ponder it till it's clear. Make sure it's clear. Make sure that is what the text is saying. It's the, it's the overarching emphasis of the text. Now, I mentioned that every text has its point, its emphasis, every paragraph of Scripture. And we're talking about an expository sermon. So you're dealing with more than a single text. You're dealing typically with a paragraph or two or three. Sometimes a whole chapter is the context. You're examining it. And let me just kind of give you an illustration that has helped me. And I, I teach this as a class, and uh, this takes several weeks. But um, I'll give you an example. If this were a door or it's not, but um, okay. If you look at the front of this pulpit, it's just a piece of wood. But if you were to examine it more carefully, you would find out that the wood has a pattern to it. And that there are, there's not just one piece of wood, but there are several divisions because of the grain. And so you can say, well, there's one layer, there's two layers, there's three layers, there's four layers. I see that. I studied it. I'm close. I, I see that it's all one piece, but it's got its own texture and it's got its own set of divisions. Now, if you take each division between the grains and you study them more carefully, you'll see the little notches in the wood and you'll see that each one is unique. And the more you study the passage, it's like studying a grain of wood. You see the natural divisions, the divisions that are in the text, and you see how they all connect to the whole. So when you have your dominant thought and you study the passage more carefully and you find out all of the other thoughts that are connected, now you have your proposition or your big idea and you have your text that you're reading from. Those are the two parallel vertical bars to which to connect everything to. That's where you start forming your outline. You know what the thought is, the main idea, and you're starting to notice the divisions, and those become your points. You're organizing. Here's a question. We talk about organizing. Does that quench the Holy Spirit to organize? I mean, that's a thought. It was even a question that uh, was asked uh, after the last session this morning is, is, is that, doesn't all of this preparation and organization stifle the natural giftedness of the Holy Spirit? Now, just think about that for a moment. I love what Desiderius Erasmus said. He said, why is it that we train elephants to dance and leopards to hunt and we can't teach preachers to preach? So take a, an athlete. He's a naturally gifted athlete. He can play golf. He, he was just natural as a kid, had a wonderful swing. You look at him on a golf course and go, that kid has got talent. Now, you'd, you take him and you don't let him go like that. Now you apply the discipline to his life, the exercise to his life, the regimen to his life. He has a coach and a mentor and he takes certain skills and hones them and he takes the natural gift and expands on it. The gift of teaching is a spiritual gift. Either you got it or you don't. It's a gift given by the Holy Spirit. Once you have that gift, you're responsible for it. You're a steward of it. Nothing wrong with applying the discipline, the education, um, and all of the rigors needed to hone that gift and make it better and better. Now, when you organize, it does something. When you organize, it helps your delivery. If you come up and you have an organized message, an organized sermon. It helps you deliver that. And, and I think it gives you more flexibility to hearing the Holy Spirit because you're not fishing for something. You know where you're going. It's organized. 
But you have a certain freedom that that affords you that nothing else can afford you. So it will help your delivery. Second, it's pleasing to your hearer. It has beauty to it. Now, some people will say, well, beauty isn't important. Really? Ever read the Sermon on the Mount? The Sermon on the Mount is both beautiful in that it has analogy and metaphor, and it is very organized in its flow of thought. Why is it that we pastors think that we should have beauty before the sermon? Well, I want to make sure the music sounds really good, really beautiful music. Or we'll sometimes have beautiful flower arrangements or plants. Got to have beauty. And then we start teaching no beauty. should really be bad. What's wrong with having it beautiful? What's wrong with having it organized? Beautify the message. So it'll help your delivery. It's pleasing to the hearer. And it will be easier to remember. When it's organized, people will remember it more. There is no permanent value in your message if somebody can't remember anything at all. That's the goal. The goal is to remember what you're saying because they may not need it Sunday morning, but Monday when they're at work and they're about to be fired or the boss is picking up on them or doing something that is happening in real life, they're going to need that principle. If they remember what they heard the day before, that's helpful. Now listen to this. True statistic. Most people will remember 25% of what you tell them if you tell it to them twice. When you tell it to them once, like in a sermon, they remember far less than 25%. Now, for a preacher to hear that, it's like, I give up. I'm going to quit. What good is this? If I've got to say that. So if you preach the message, they go by the CD or they listen to the MP3 and listen to it again, they'll remember 25% of it. So don't you want to make sure that what you're giving them sticks and they can remember as much as possible? How many of you ever been to um, Mount Rushmore? Okay. So you remember what that looks like. How many of you ever been to Stonehenge? I forgot to put my hand out. I've always wanted to go. Okay, so a few people have. Now, those are stone structures that you remember. How many of you could tell me exactly how the stones on the side of the road when you came here this morning looked? No one. They're not memorable. They're just a smattering of them. What's the difference? Organization. The way Stonehenge is organized makes it memorable. The way the artist applied the stonework to Mount Rushmore is memorable. So think of a sermon that way, just like we're talking about all of these materials. Inasmuch as wood, glass, stones, and stucco do not make a building, but the difference between a pile of those materials and a building is organization. Paints, easels, they don't make a painting. Organization makes a painting. Text, illustrations, points, don't make a sermon. Organization does. See the difference? So you go from pondering to organizing. You have the dominant thought. You have all of the points. They're connected to the proposition, connected to the text. Now you have a structure to build on. Number three, engaging. That's the third step, engaging. Look at verse 10. The preacher sought to find acceptable words. And what was written was upright. 
words of truth. The word acceptable can be translated and is translated in some translations delightful. The preacher sought to find delightful words. The phrase, the word, means to feel great favor towards something or emotional delight. This is where the preacher goes beyond just the facts. He's gathered facts. He has points. But there comes a point in the delivery of a message, and I would say in the preparation of the message, where you think about being engaging. I love how Phillips Brooks talked about preaching. He calls it truth through personality. Truth conveyed through personality. And it's your personality. And God gave you that personality. And don't be ashamed to use that personality. Be who you are. Accept who you are. Enjoy who you are. Let God's truth, you're the preacher, you're the bridge builder, come through your personality. And why not use a little sanctified imagination? Why not climb into the scene and picture the scene and then with words engaging, delightful words, convey the scene that you see? Let it live. Make it interesting. In the early days of television, Jack Parr, one of the moguls then, said, the greatest sin somebody can commit in public is to be dull. Well, the Bible isn't dull. The Bible is interesting. Its truths are delightful. And yet, Sunday after Sunday, pastors manage to deliver stillborn sermons. They can be engaging. You've heard of Vance Havner. He used to say, the problem with a typical Sunday morning worship service is that it starts at 11 o'clock sharp and ends at 12 o'clock dull. <laughs> okay, so we want to engage people. We want to stimulate their interest. We don't want to cure their insomnia. Right? We want to... We want to stimulate their interest. We can do that. We can apply delightful words. That's why I, I recommended to you the synonym finder. You can say, what's another word for that? What's a, another way of saying that? If you've ever stud, studied cognitive science, split brain analysis, you know that typically activities like art or music are put in the right brain category. And and exercises like preaching, exposition, are put in the left brain category because, well, after all, that's logic and that's language and that's analysis. It doesn't have to be that way. We could help them hear what is being said, hear the scene, listen to the hoofbeats of the Roman soldiers on their horses coming through town. You could paint the picture. You could be engaging. You could turn, listen to this, involuntary attention to voluntary attention. Most people come to church not like this. They come to church like this. Is it time yet? It's involuntary. They come to check it out or they have to be there or some of them like to, it, to be there, but, but you could turn the involuntary to voluntary attention. I have a quote from a Life magazine author, Peter O'Neill. I love it. He said, Always grab the reader by the throat in the first paragraph. Sink your thumbs into his windpipe in the second paragraph. And hold him up against the wall until the tagline. That's a good writer. You know the kind? You read a book, you go, I can't put it down. Me? Better be a good writer because I get bored with books really easily. So somebody that is engaging has the upper hand. 
Now, how can you be engaging? That's just the principle. How can you do it? Let me give you a few tips. Number one, use clear language. Clear, understandable language. Don't say felicity anymore. Nobody knows what that is. Say happiness. You don't have to talk about harmatiology. Just call it sin. Nobody cares that you know the word. Just say sin. True story. C.S. Lewis heard a young man preach and said, If you refuse the call of Christ, you will suffer grave eschatological ramifications. That's what he said. So C.S. Lewis came up to him afterwards and said, Did you mean to say that if you don't accept Christ, you're going to hell? He said, Precisely. And C.S. Lewis said, Why didn't you just say that? Now that's unmistakable. That's clear, unmistakable language. The, the greatest example of this is whom? It's Jesus. The common people heard him gladly. I love that text. Jesus, like all good teachers, put the cookies, as we say, on the bottom shelf where anybody can reach them. And he said, not feed my giraffes, but feed my sheep. And he was a good example of it. Jerome, often called St. Jerome, said, uh, a holy clumsiness is better than a sinful eloquence. Clear, understandable speech. That helps to engage. Here's another nut and bolt. Maybe there's two nuts and two bolts here. I don't know. A good introduction. A good introduction. Do you know that you have 30 seconds to grab your audience or lose them? Somebody comes in to listen to you, unless they're just an avid in love with Jesus Christian, you have 30 seconds or you will lose them. You can win them. You can make a statement. You can offer a statement that is compelling. And they go, huh, I want to hear more. That's interesting. I want to hear more. A good introduction will help. Sort of like a porch on the building. A porch opens the way, shows the way in, introduces the steps and the rest of it. Here's another nut or a bolt, depending on what you want. Use some humor. Relax. Don't be afraid to crack a joke. Now, you're not a stand-up comic. You don't have to try to be, you know, on Saturday Night Live. But Americans love to laugh, and in difficult times, and there's a lot of laughter in the Bible. There's just a lot of scenarios in the Bible that are hilarious. Don't hide that. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, if you've read any of him or his biographies, you know that he was given to this. He loved humor. And he was often castigated because he would say things that were considered irreverent or were humorous. And one lady rebuked him after a service and said, I think you use entirely too much humor in the pulpit. And he said, Madam, if you only knew how much I was holding back, you'd give me credit. <laughs> in other words, there's a lot more there that I'm holding back. Here's another way you can be engaging. Use illustrations. Illustrations. Illustrations color the scene. They take away the black and white. They add texture to it. They add light to it. Compare an illustration to a window in a house or a window in a church. Wouldn't it be great to have windows in this building? Uh, let the light in a little bit. Um, let the outside light. In your house, you have windows. In buildings, you have windows. It lets the light in, and it shows you the relationship between the outside world and the world that you're living in. It's good to do that. Now, be careful. Too many windows, and you have a glass house. There's a crystal cathedral, I think, right down the street. 
But uh, you'll lose the integrity of the message if you have all glass. You need structure, you need walls, you need foundation, and you need illustrations or windows. Or look at it like spices. You put spices on the food. I live in New Mexico, and red and green chili reign supreme in my state. And we love our chili. We love spices. But you don't want the whole thing to be spices or you won't have any nutrition. So you want a good balanced meal. You can spice it up with illustrations. Number four is application or applying. So we have pondering, pondering, organizing, we have engaging, and we have applying. Look at our text. Verse 11. The words... The words of the wise are like goads. You know what goads are. They prod animals. They get under the skin. They motivate. They motivate. They push an animal forward. An animal feels the prick of the goad and goes, Oh, I'm going to go forward, not backward. The words of the wise are like goads. The words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. That's the purpose of preaching. The purpose of preaching is not to explain a subject as much as to achieve an object. You want it to be a goad. You're moving them along point to point. The text, the word of God is speaking to them, and you want to end on the note where they apply it to their lives. You can apply it all the way through the sermon. You can apply it at the end. Some do one or the other. Some do both. You can't just teach and walk away and say, now may the Lord... Confirm to our hearts whatever the Holy Spirit wants to say. Can't do that. Can you imagine David confronting Nathan, or Nathan confronting David with his sin, and telling the whole story about the rich guy and taking the lamb and, and slaughtering it and you know, stealing it from the poor guy. And then afterwards, David's going, wow. And then Nathan says, may the Lord now apply this truth to our hearts and walk out. Now, you know, what his, you know what his clincher was in that sermon? You are the man. Bam! He was hammered against the wall. That's application. If you're good at exposition, please be good at application. You don't have to separate one from the other. It's more than exegesis. Now, we keep going back to John Stott and the interview that Al Mohler had with him, the one that John copied and, and, and gave to everybody. There's something really great that... Stott confesses to in that little interview. I'll just read the paragraph. Stott speaking. In my early days, I used to think that my business was to expound and exegete the text. I'm afraid that I left the application to the Holy Spirit. It is amazing how you can conceal your laziness with a little pious phraseology. The Holy Spirit certainly can and does apply the word for the people, but it's wrong to deny our own responsibility in the application of the word. All great preachers understand this. They focus on the conclusion, on the application of the text. This is what the Puritans called preaching through to the heart. This is how my own preaching has changed. I have learned to add application to exposition and this bridge building across the chasm. How do we do that? How do we move from organization to an application? Here's a couple of thoughts. Move from the facts to the principles. Move from the facts to the principles. 
This is what is stated. This is the fact. This is the meaning. What's the principle behind it? And make that personal. Move from the facts to the principles. These are truths that transcend history, transcend culture, transcend language. They are true in every generation. Those are the broad principles. Move from the facts to the principles. And second, move from the impersonal to the personal. From the impersonal, don't be afraid to say you in the pulpit. You don't have to say we all the time. Aim your rifle and pull the trigger. Know what you're shooting at. Move from impersonal to personal. What helps me is as I'm writing things down on my yellow pad and preparing the sermon, I actually, in my mind's eye, picture different ones who are going to be in the audience. I picture the businessman and what it's going to be like as he hears these words and how he would apply it to his Monday morning business meeting. I think of the single mother in the balcony who's struggling to keep ends together in her lives and raising children. She's been abandoned by her husband and how she's going to hear that and And I think of all the the young teenager, all the different people are in my mind, and I think, what would they say to this? They might say, well, how do you do that, Skip? Or what exactly does that mean? And that helps me in the preparation and in the application. Um, I have outlines that I want to compare, and I'll probably do it at our Q&A, but what I've done is I brought outlines from messages that I have preached, and I show you a couple of different ways to outline the same passage. One is to outline based on the principle. Uh, The other is to outline based on the fact. So you you can outline the traditional way, kind of there's this and there's this and there's this and there's that. Or you can say the same thing in principle form and make it applicational from the very beginning. You don't have to wait to the very end. You're giving out the principles. You've done the exegesis. You've done the observation. You've done the interpretation. Now you're giving to them the principles. You're showing them how you arrived at the principles. Because once you give the principle and you outline this way, they're going to be wondering, well, where do you get that from? And then they go, oh, that's where you got it from. It's right there in the text. And that's a good thing. It's helping them connect the principle that you're preaching from with the text. I want to just close with uh, something I just sort of threw in at the end here. I just think it's important for preachers to hear this. Uh, Billy Graham who spoke about principles for preaching. He gave this, and I'll never forget it. He says, these are things that he has discovered over many years of preaching that are true about any audience he's ever spoken to, and it's good for preachers to keep this in mind whenever they preach. Number one, the needs are not totally met by the social improvement or affluence of the day. I'll say that again. The needs of that group are not totally met by social improvement or affluence of the day. They may be coming upwardly mobile. They might have more creature comforts. They might be in a better place in life. They feel good. Their needs are not totally met by that. That's a given about any audience. Number two, there is an essential emptiness in the life, in every life without Christ. He's discovered in every crowd he's spoken to that people are empty in any culture in their life if it's without Christ. Number three, In every audience, there are lonely people. There are lonely people in every audience. Number four, those lonely people have a sense of guilt, and many in that audience live with a sense of guilt. Number five, they share a universal fear of death. 
And Billy Graham says he goes over these when he preaches and he, he looks out over the audiences, over the places he's preached, and he keeps those principles in mind. He goes, I know that these are true about many people that are in this crowd. So those are true, he says, about any audience. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we could go over these nuts and bolts, and we look forward, Lord, to hearing from John now and then sort of fleshing these out a little bit more in uh, the Q&A that's coming up. In Jesus' name, amen.